0: this week on Writers Inc. Those people that are spending billions, well, that's an exaggeration, but are they really winning? You know, we say they're gonna win the visibility war, but are they really winning? You know, I think if you can figure out a way to do it and stay lean and stay viable, lower your expectations, And find ways to be crafty and work beneath
1: all that instead of trying to outspend them, I think you'll have the advantage. Whether you are traditionally published or indie, writing a good book is only the first step in becoming a successful author. The days of just turning a manuscript into your editor and walking away are gone. If you want to succeed in today's publishing world, you need to understand every aspect of the business. Editing, formatting, marketing, contracts. It all starts with a good book. Then the real work begins. Join international best-selling author J.D. Barker and indie powerhouse Jay Thorne as they gain unique insight and valuable advice from the most prolific and accomplished authors in the business. The publishing world is changing, adapting. Do you have what it takes to become a full-time writer? If you're willing to do the work, we'll give you the tools. Get your notepad out. School's in session. This is Writer's Inc. So, J.D., what are you working on this week, man?
2: Oh, I am working on a brand new Patterson outline, which I think I, I talked to you about last week. And I'm also working on a second book for Kristen, um, which I can't go into yet, but it's a really cool story that I've been wanting to tell for a while. Um, and it, I, I came up with a tagline before I actually came up with the idea for the book. Um, but it's like, it's such a strong tagline. Like I can picture it on the movie poster. Oh, wow. That's like, that's like my driving factor. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to outline that one too, just to see if I can pull it off. <laughs> Um, and, I, and I think I'm going to get in trouble. Like, I don't know if you can hear that noise out there, but um, we've got one contractor again, who's back in the house and he's been working.
3: Sounds like an air gun.
2: Play- <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He, he um, we've been waiting to the re- a door um, because we've had, a, you know, it's been sitting in the garage, the brand new one. Um, our existing front door of the house has been bolted shut because when we put the new floors in, they were too high. So you literally couldn't open the door. Oh, right. so, we, so we had to put a node on it and screw it shut. So nobody opened it and messed <laughs> up our floors. So, like, I've been pushing and pushing to get this front door put in. I looked at the forecast this morning and, it, and he didn't want to do it because he said it was going to rain all day. And according to my app, it, it's like, oh, it's going to start raining in 30 minutes. Um, so, I, you know, I, sent a screenshot of that over to my wife and said well let's just go ahead and put it in today it hasn't stopped raining for like five <laughs> hours like it, it's still i mean it's not pouring but it's like just enough to be a pain in the ass of when course yes right know, you got a big hole in the front of your house <laughs> but, but he's trucking away like the doors is hanging and it looks awesome <laughs>
3: what, what's going on with you uh just kind of plugging away on some stuff um you and I exchanged some emails. I, I appreciate your help uh, on my my chapter one of, of the manuscript that I'm writing, and uh, I think I'm going to go another revision on that, so I've been thinking about how I want to approach it. Uh, so, so that's been fun, and I'm uh, looking forward to doing that. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much it on this end. Cool. We've
2: cool. got uh, Scott Nicholson today, right?
3: Yeah, we do. I'm excited to talk to Scott. Uh, I don't remember if I mentioned this last week when we were at the end of the episode, but Um, Scott was one of those guys, one of those horror uh, authors I found really early on. I mean, before I even was messing with Kindle, uh, when I had a Kindle and was looking for things to read, I found some great Scott Nicholson books. And uh, I think we talked about Red Church and um, Drummer Boy, and uh, there were several others. And uh, he was one of the first guys I reached out to. I was reading Joe Conrath's blog back then, and I know Scott and Blake Crouch were kind of uh, in those same circles. And uh and, and, and he's just a really he's a really neat and warm guy, but he's not he you don't see him everywhere. Like he kind of just does his thing and, and just goes about like, you know, writing and, and taking care of his own stuff. So you might not recognize him, but I'm uh, looking forward to talking to him. What's
2: well, the thing we were talking about last week? You know, slow and steady kind of wins the race. You just keep putting book out after book out after book out, and before you know it, you've got such a big back catalog. Um, you know, the revenue coming in is is enough to sustain you, or you know, or better. Um, and I, I was just flipping through Amazon because I wasn't familiar with with, with Scott, but I, I counted, I think, fifty books, and I just sort of gave up on the, you know, go <laughs> go to the next page because he's obviously got a pretty pretty long backlist going out there. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and there's quite a few people that are that are like that you know you don't necessarily even know their their name they're, they're not a household name but you know they've got that following especially the ones that have been around from the beginning at kindle because i i think you know like there's a, a lesser a smaller choice group or you know you didn't have a whole lot of options um and i think a lot of people found somebody that they liked, like like scott and they just keep reading you know every single book that comes out you know and they've been doing it for for 15 years now
3: yeah and he's one of these guys too who i find really interesting because he's got a a very diverse background. I mean, sort of like you, you have a very diverse background too, but Scott, you know, he was a journalist and a musician and he's, he kind of lives off the land and he's a farmer. And, and I think all of that makes for really interesting stories when you can kind of take this varied experience that you have and kind of put that into your storytelling chops.
2: It's honestly one of my favorite things about social media. Like I, I don't do a lot of it, but Twitter is probably the only one I actually really pay attention to. Um, like today, one of the guys that I follow is David Morales. He's he you know, the, the writer of first blood, he created Rainbow, Rambo. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and today he's posting about the, his the garden that he's planting and he's trying to figure out whether he should plant beans or if it's too early in the year. And I'm like, this is the guy who created Rambo and he's planting this garden out there, but it's <laughs> like, it, it's such a weird glimpse into everybody's life. And, you know, before, you know, if you go back when none of this stuff existed, like the only you know shot you really got of any author is, you know, what they allowed you to see what that publisher put out there. So it might be Stephen King walking out for an interview somewhere, um, or something you see on the today show in the morning. Um, but it, it's something, you know, it's more or less choreographed, it's planned, it's scripted. Um, you know, so they're giving you their, their best self. Um, and you can't really do that so much in today's world because there's, there's cameras everywhere, yeah. but it's kind of neat. It's kind of neat to see the, the well-rounded, the, the other sides of, of people, yeah. um, and see, see how it feeds their, their writing mind.
3: Yeah, I agree. So this should be a fun talk. So are we ready to get into the interview?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Let's go.
3: How are you doing? I'm doing great, man. It's been a while since we talked yeah you got a little patch of heaven there, huh? <laughs> yeah, I guess you could call it that. <laughs> nice to have a place to escape. Yeah, yeah, you gotta have your own little space to get the work done, right? Yeah, so you're a musician too, right? Yeah, yeah i've uh I've been playing guitar for most of my life, not well, but uh probably not as good as you. Oh no,
0: I haven't gotten any better with age. <laughs> Are you still plucking away on it? Yeah. I've got a little tinnitus, so I can't amplify, so I just play the electric without it plugged in, and, you know, yeah. that rock and roll wears on you after a while.
3: <laughs> yeah, it takes its toll, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> hey, man, I'm so excited to talk to you today. Uh, you know, JD and I are uh, uh, really pumped about this new podcast and and really putting the emphasis on on the business aspect of writing, and I, I know you're a humble guy, and, you, and you're not going to like me saying this, but you're one of the pioneers in our circles
0: uh, I've heard that but I think it was just uh, where I was at the time it was kind of lucky timing and it was I think a little bit more desperation than inspiration
3: <laughs> well it all counts man I mean I I, I remember back to I, I maybe 2009 or so uh, and I was in I had gotten a Kindle and I was starting to fill it up with all these books as most of us were at that time and being into the horror and dark fantasy and, and sort of the darker genre fiction. I remember having a, a lot of Scott Nicholson titles on my, on my Kindle, uh, everything from drummer boy to, uh, I think you, um, you had a few titles with J.R. Rain too, right? Like ghost college might've been the ghost file series, I think.
0: Yeah. J.R. was into it really early and. uh, the- I was actually, I consider myself the second wave. I think I watched it for about a year. And I said, J.A. Conrath, of course, was a big pioneer in it. And I've, and I've known him for a while. And uh, I was kind of skeptical at first because I was raised, I came from mass market publishing and, you know, you don't publish yourself, vanity publishing. And it'll ruin your career and this and give, you know, you'll get blackballed and all this stuff. So I, I, I swallowed those myths and i sat there for a year watching and then i was getting rejection from my agent and it's kind of i hadn't published a book in three years through the traditional press except for did some small press and side projects but it was like i gotta why not try this what do i have to lose
3: yeah and you you had gotten some uh you had some rights back i think is that what allowed you to kind of pursue uh, self-publishing
0: yeah, I got my first novel back, and I had some that I hadn't been able to sell to a publisher and also had some uh, novellas and short story collections and things like that piled up. So it was like, they're sitting there doing nothing. Let's see what happens. Hmm. So that was really at the very end of 2009
3: okay. I got into it. Okay. So, so uh, take us back for a second. I mean, uh, yeah, I know you're you're one of the very few authors who I think has had – Uh, a wide range of publishing experience. I mean, you've had mass market deals, you've been published by Amazon Imprints, you've published yourself, you you have this wide uh, range of experience, but uh, not so much in 2008, 2009. So sort of where were you at that time? and, And what was the industry like at that moment?
0: Well, for me personally, the industry was a lot harder. I wasn't getting any deals. Obviously, I had an agent who was still shopping things. And I felt like I was close, but, um, it was just a matter of time, but I was also staying active. I, was, I switched into screenplays and comic scripts and got into indie comic publishing. And I think that gave me a little flavor of got me ready for the Kindle a little bit because in the comics world, 99.9% is do it yourself. And, uh, I learned a lot from that ethos and, um, it just carried over and helped me there seeing people doing it. Even if they weren't making a ton of money, they were able to follow their passion and not let the roadblocks stop them.
3: And do you remember any of the advice that you had gotten at that time, whether it was from Joe or or Jr. about sort of moving, taking these, these titles that have been traditionally published and and trying this new crazy Amazon KDP thing. Like, do you remember any advice you had gotten at the time?
0: I, I was reading blogs, especially uh, Conraths, and, uh, but I wasn't really talking to anybody. I was just kind of observing, and, uh, and I saw that year, and I saw what people were doing. Um, Blake Crouch was another early guy in with oh, Conrath, mm-hmm. and uh, a guy I published with at uh, John Mers that uh, we published at Kensington around the same time, back in the early 2000s, and um, I saw he had gone into self-publishing in like 2007 when the Kindle was brand new, and some of course, some people were doing it on PDFs and other forms before Kindle came along, but the right. Kindle really made it widespread, put it in everybody's hands.
3: Yeah, I remember, now that you mention it, I think uh, our our, our uh, mutual buddy uh, uh, across the pond, right. Moody, David Moody, I think he's, he started the Hater Series as PDFs, I believe. Right. Yeah. I didn't
0: know about that until much later. In fact, I just read that a couple of days ago and I was like, "Wow, I didn't know where he came from. I thought he was a traditionally published star." You know.
3: Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, you were you so you were in a prime position then in what a lot of us uh, now lovingly refer to as the Kindle Gold Rush in in 2011-2012 where uh that was a time where readers were really voracious about getting, you know, filling up their Kindles with ebook titles. And uh, what, was the, what was the transition like for you moving from the, the mass market world that you had been in to this new crazy self-publishing paradigm?
0: Mostly it was a process of forgetting all the myths that, I, that had been drummed into me from the old school of like, you know, you, you can't self-publish. Uh, and I, I'm not really that technically inclined. So for me, but, but it's as simple as publishing a blog. When once I figured that out, it's like, You know, this is a lot easier than having to count on a lot of other different people because all my life I've been kind of independently creative and even in working different jobs, I've sort of always, even when I work for somebody, I was always sort of left to myself to do, okay, do this and I'll leave you alone. And so I've always been a self-starter and it's like everything about this, not having to deal with people kind of fits my (laughs) personality and, you know i'm kind of reclusive and quiet and just want to hang out at home and make up my bs and <laughs> play in my little worlds and that makes me happy and kind of an internal life so it all fit part of my personality
3: yeah that's a good point uh, i mean you 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 live in in uh, appalachia the appalachian southern appalachian mountains kind of in a in your own little spot and uh And you and you do kind of keep to yourself even, even within the circles, which I've always admired, like you've, you've kind of stayed out of a lot of the, the quote unquote controversies over the years, whether it's, you know, the keyboard stuff or Facebook groups, you, you just kind of keep doing your own thing. And uh, do you feel like there's part of you that's just sort of is, is simply wired to outlast whatever the the trend or the, or, or the, the bump in the road might happen to be?
0: Oh uh, yeah, well I'll get into that more later. But really, one of my key principles is stay in the game no matter what. Uh, just whatever it takes to survive and be able to protect your writing and your writing time and whatever you know your creativity and independence, uh, self-reliance more than independence really, because ultimately we all need other people. Mm. If it wasn't for Jeff Bezos, you know, <laughs> you'd never hear, you'd never have heard of Bezos. <laughs> Yeah once, yeah, once in a while you come across one, one of my paperbacks in a used bookstore, but they're pretty beat up <laughs> and rare. So I don't think I would have lasted if I, if that would have been all that was all of my writing career was in the early 2000s.
3: Right. Yeah. And I, I have found some of your books in the wild. And I think it's a compliment to you that they are beat up and dog-eared as opposed to never uh, had the spine cracked.
0: That's one of the highest praises that you don't really get from the Kindle, though. You don't know who's really reading them.
3: Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. So how far into the into the self publishing journey were you when you realized that uh this it was viable, that it was maybe not just a, a flash in the pan or sort of a, a technical piece of candy that writers are gravitating to, that you could continue to make a living that way?
0: Well the uh, the very first principle was to get it out there. And, and I treat, you know, if you're focusing on the business of writing is to really focus, look at the business aspect. At first it was just a creative, you know, I've always been business oriented. And when it comes to my writing, I've always looked for a way to make it viable because my only goal in life was to be a full-time writer. I was never wanted to be a bestseller or famous or anything. I just wanted to have the time to do what I needed to do or wanted to do. And, um, even during my previous life as a musician. And even when I got into newspaper journalism, my focus was always, I was going to be a writer. I never took promotions. I never dedicated my life to those careers because they weren't careers. They were just jobs. And I think I always put writing first. And at the beginning of 2000, I published the republished the red church. I just gotten the rights back to my first novel and that did pretty well for a mass market paperback. And it was a Stoker finalist. And, um, you know, you say I'm humble, but I consider that a minor classic in the horror field. I mean, it's probably the book and people say, what should I read first? I always say that, which is sad because my first book is (laughs) probably my best one. It's (laughs) like, I'm getting worse with age. (laughs) That's okay, but I republished it, and I published a novella a few days before the, that. And um, I was just—I'm going to sit back and watch this and see what happens. And I was, every month I was making a little more money, and then and then I did some story collections. Then along about March or April of that year, I was like, you know, I've got these books I've been that I've been pitching to the agent, and I've been writing them anyway because I need to be a writer. And so I had these books that weren't selling to the main press mainstream press it's, why not put those up and see what happens like, what do I have to lose really and that's where I go to the desperation part I really didn't have a lot to lose from the traditional perspective so what if they blackballed me <laughs> they weren't letting me they didn't want me anymore anyway so and then I started putting up more and more and every month I was making more money and at the end of the year I looked at that growth and it was like okay first I'm making more than my newspaper job and second if I took these numbers to a bank and said this is my business They'd probably let me borrow money on it because mm-hmm. I'm showing growth. It's a good note. Not a lot of overhead. It looked like a very sustainable business model. And it's like, why am I still at this newspaper job? Right. I should be doing this all the time. So I put in my notice, they wouldn't let me quit for three more months. So I to, it wasn't until 2011 that I went full time, but um, it was also good to have that time to get everything lined up because again, as part of the business of writing, I believe writers should, um, you know, your life budget, your lifestyle, um, and being practical. I think you need a practical grounding to be able to be a professional writer, full-time professional writer. If you're, if you're lousy with money, if you can't pay your bills, you're not going to be able to write as much. You're not going to have as much free time because you're always panicking and freaking out. So, uh, you know, frugality and, And life management to me is just as important as your writing management.
3: I'm so glad you brought that up because I was going to ask you, as you saw your royalty statements growing every month in in those first few years, how were you managing that money? Were you reinvesting a certain percentage back into editing and cover design or were you sort of... Keeping it very DIY, almost like a punk rock attitude, where you you know were you were just paying out of pocket. Like, do you remember how you were managing that that cash flow? Uh,
0: yeah, I'd done some I'd done some trades. Like, I had a guy who was doing my covers, and I was publishing his small press. as a UK artist, and I don't want to get into all of that. But basically, I'd worked out some several trades where I was doing some editing for covers, uh, some publishing other people for covers. So I really had low overhead and there was a lot of us just figuring it out. So it was great to trade around and I was doing a lot of my own covers, which, you know, at the time you could get away with. And I did that for as long as I could and really kept my overhead low. And there weren't a whole lot of advertising outlets back then either. So it was mainly just uh, for me, just keeping books out and releasing new material and staying visible was important to me at that time. So, uh, but also, I was kind of like, I didn't expect this to last. <laughs> I've, uh, even back then, you can probably do a Google search and find me saying in 2010, it's like five years at the most, <laughs> which is window, and uh, get what you can while it's uh, while it's hot. And to that end, I was also saving a lot of money because I figured, okay, this is going to end. I got to make as much as I can and let that. You know, if if it lasts five years, then maybe I'll save enough money to be able to write another five years.
3: Yeah, I, I remember, uh, I remember you saying something like that on the Horror Writers podcast a number of years ago, and I remember thinking it's a good thing you write post apoc and, and, and zombie fiction <laughs> <laughs> because you were saying back then it's all it's all going to end, man. It's all going to end. <laughs> well, I
0: still might be right. I was just a little bit early on my prediction.
3: <laughs> yeah, that's right. We we'll all admit,
0: yeah. It's gotten tougher. I think we'll all admit that.
3: Yeah, it is. And uh, I'm definitely going to I want to pick your brain a little bit about sort of where we are now. But there seems to be um, maybe sort of a a bridging of your career, maybe from the more traditional stuff to the purely self-publishing. And that's that you've also been published by some Amazon imprints, uh, Thomas and Mercer and 47 North. Can you tell us a little bit about how that came about and sort of how that fit into your overall publication process?
0: Oh, that was all really just luck because (laughs) really about 2013, I'd had this thriller out called Liquid Fear, which really is not one of my best books. And I can look back now and say, well, if they'd have discovered a different book by me, my entire career might look differently Mm -hmm. because if that had made me into their A-list horror writer, I think we'd both be better off today, but that's not the way it happened. It was kind of a, one-off for me. I was like, this is just a weird left field thing that I'd actually started. I'd written about six chapters back in the, maybe 2008 and my agent couldn't sell the book and uh, somewhere along the line, it's like, well, he can't sell it, but I bet I can. <laughs> so I finished the book and put it out and he's was like, back then you could just get a lot of sales real fast and the system would help you get, they got up to like the 20, rank 20 or 30 in Kindle and it was a lot easier to do back then, you know, a 99 cent book and it just stayed there and turned and, you know, it had like three and a half stars or something, but it was still selling like crazy because it's in everybody's face. And that was about the time they started looking. I think I was one of their early authors. Um, then they released me at Christmas of one of those years that and then the sequel. So I had a two book contract and it really did pretty well, but then it, you know, they got more writers and. I got bumped down and now like five years ago in this business at this current epoch is, you know, 10, 10 generations
3: ago. <laughs> yeah. But you know, you've always uh, also had, and maybe this goes back to your days as, a, as an independent musician or a journalist, but you've, I, I felt like you've always been someone who's been, uh, who sort of squeezed every drop out of all of your IP like you you've got, you've been in audiobooks you've pushed hard into foreign translations h- how does h- how do you budget for that or is that something like do you do you have a plan when you publish a book that you're going to also publish in these foreign markets or do you sort of uh wait and see how how things perform once they come out
0: uh, well the the foreign market there's no telling how they're going to do compared to the US mm-hmm. so you can't judge like oh the US book didn't sell so I shouldn't bother with the foreign translation. I was just like as many people as I can get involved. And I did all my translations on a percentage sharing basis. You know, they, the um, translator gets, I'd have two people at least in every language and one would be the translator and one would be the uh, copy editor. So there's at least two people editing because I couldn't judge the quality. And sometimes they worked on each other's book translations and uh, one would edit and the other would Translate, and so I figured I had about the best as I could do without a team, and um, and I explained the model. Here's what I'm doing. Uh, a lot of them, it took a while for translators to understand because they were used to getting a flat fee, and it's mm-hmm. like, no, this is kind of a profit sharing, and uh, we're taking a risk here. And I was upfront about all of them. It's like, you know, we don't know what's going to happen with this, and there was some successes. You know, I got up a really high ranked book in Germany, I think at 30. Mm-hmm actually I had a top 10 book in Germany and, wow. and that was back early again, that market's gotten harder too. So every, you know, I had some great teams and some that seems like reading the reviews that the translation's a little wonky. So, um, It's really hard to tell because translation is as much an art as a craft. So, yeah, uh, good point. I can't judge, or maybe the original book was a bomb. They just, uh, you know, different. You know, like the Germans, they are really dark books. So sometimes it's a cultural uh, thing. And um, but I figured again, I had nothing to lose. I just had the overhead of since I was profit sharing. All I had was time invested, and my wife helps me with all that. Still today, she does the. All the records and dividing up the royalties and everything. So. Yeah, and being early into all that, I think gave me an advantage.
3: Right, right. You know, uh, some would say that we're possibly in the age of pay to play, or maybe even even in the in the later phases of it. I know our another um, mutual friend, Russell Blake, is is doing really well with with paid advertising, and he's been blogging about that. Can you, can you talk a little bit about sort of what your, maybe what your philosophy is on paid advertising or, or how you use it to help promote and sell your books?
0: Well, uh, in the earlier days, there were so few advertising sites that focused on Kindle books. You could just hit all of those in the same week and it would boost you up the charts because it would amplify the algorithms and your visibility. And um, then more people would grab it and you get that momentum. And then of course that, that got weaker and, uh, I think the, those sites have made a big error in not evolving. They're still doing the same thing they were doing in 2012. Right. And, uh, like, okay, we send out this daily list of books on sale, blah, 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 blah. And nobody's really evolved into, I think, some great ideas that I'm not interested in pursuing, but I wish somebody would. <laughs> and uh, I could get into those more later. But then more people got into it. Now I think it's a cost-for-click war and who's mm-hmm. going to want to spend the most to buy the most eyeballs. You can also Google search and find long ago, I was saying Amazon's end game is advertising. They're an advertiser, not a bookseller. Yes. They're going to want us to buy advertising on their side. And, and then not just book writers, but everybody who's selling on there. We're in a race to the bottom. Uh, who's going to spend the most money to sell the product?
3: You know, that's such a good point. And it, it's something that concerns me given where we are right now in that uh, if you are an independent publisher or an independent writer or even a small publisher, uh, it, it, very soon it, it feels like we're going to get boxed out. Like there, there's only so high we can bid per click against the, you know, the big five or the big four or however many will be left at, at one point. Uh, but like the, it's, it feels like the companies or the corporations with the deepest pockets are going to win that battle. And, uh, and I'm wondering like, you know, are you thinking past that at this point? Like, are you thinking what's next?
0: Well, yeah, there's part of that. But I say today that the best, the best, the person who figures out cost per click is going to beat the, the better rider. So, you know, it doesn't matter if you're a great rider, if you can't figure out how to be seen. <laughs> uh, and, you know, a crappy rider who's really into figuring out the game, it has an advantage right at this point in time. I don't think it's going to last because... Uh, those people that are spending billions, well, that's an exaggeration, but are they really winning? You know, we say they're going to win the visibility war, but are they really winning? You know, I think if you can figure out a way to do it and stay lean and stay viable, lower your expectations, um, and find ways to be crafty and work beneath that, all that, instead of trying to outspend them, I think you'll have the advantage.
3: Yeah. Uh, And what would you say is the key to that advantage for, the say the independent writer who's sitting at home right now listening to this, they they're working a nine to five. They're, they're sort of churning away doing all the things they're supposed to do for the craft, but they're seeing this doom and gloom prediction that, you know, unless you can throw $400 a day at Amazon ads, that there's no chance your book is going to get seen. Like if you were that person now, what would you be doing? I
0: would say you still need to turn out material on a regular basis. Uh, build your newsletter list and um, all the places because, you know, new books have the greatest advantage, both in the algorithms and in your own existing fan base. So really develop your fan base and your newsletter list, the things you can control traditionally. You know, I used to say that if you'd asked me three or four years ago, I'd have said, be good at Facebook. Yeah. Now it's like, I barely use Facebook. Right. Uh, and if it wasn't for meeting the ads, occasionally, I wouldn't be on Facebook at all. And it's like, I used to say, I still say, be good at what you're good at. You know, if you like Twitter and you got a following, build that up. But you don't have to do everything. You don't have to be on Facebook. Uh, You don't have to buy the Amazon ads. Um, I keep a little bit of ad going on for my newest book all the time on Amazon. But, you know, I'll bid three or five dollars a day. I'm not going to spend crazy money just to stay visible because I think that's a losing war. Mm. Honestly, I'd rather put the money in <laughs> my retirement fund than uh, dump it to Amazon. They don't need the money.
3: <laughs> yeah. You, you mentioned the, the power and importance of the newsletter. You've been, you've had a newsletter for many, many years. Uh, how has that changed or not changed or your approach to a newsletter changed or not changed over the years?
0: Well, I do it a little differently from a lot of people who give away the free book or do giveaways and get people to join their mailing list. I want to vary people who want to hear from me. I don't want just people who want to get something free and they just sign up. So I've always been careful about I want only core fans. I only have a few thousand, really. But, you know, BookBub, I've got like almost 8,000 followers. So when I publish a new book, those people are going to get that um notice so but that's you know bookbub controls that they one day they're probably going to decide to charge me to let my followers know about my new book but then right now it's great Uh, but then again that's not something i can count on in the future all i can count on is my newsletter and even that you know they people raise their uh, companies will raise their prices and you what do you really control i don't know (laughs) i guess you're writing outputs about all you can really control at the end of the day
3: that's that's great business advice, I think. Not not even so much craft, but uh you, you really can only control what you can control. And and I think your point too about Amazon being in an advertising marketplace is going to apply for maybe some of these other uh less sophisticated platforms. Like BookBub's a great example. I I could totally see uh, in the near future, BookBub charging authors to reach those people who have uh, decided to follow you on that platform as they legitimately can. I mean, they, they built that and therefore they own that real estate, uh, which is why it's, you know, I think it's so critical to, to have a mailing list and to cultivate that. Um, other than sort of organic signups or maybe CTAs in the back of your book, are you doing anything else actively to, uh, to get people onto your newsletter or your mailing list?
0: Not really. I think I was in one, I can't even remember the name of the site, but they do a group um, sign up for the newsletter and you get all these authors newsletters. I think it's like 10 or so. And, and you get 10 free books from one from each author. I was in one of those and it added, you know, maybe 800 people. I don't know how many of those are going to stick around. I don't want a whole lot of people to, and sign it out of my list because I hurt your score or whatever. That's why I really want to focus on the people who really want to hear from me. And I don't send out, I only send out new releases, very occasionally a group giveaway or a sale or something, but I'm really, because I hate to get so much mail myself. It's like, how can I get less mail? Yeah. So I don't want to bombard people with mail. Although some of the new advice is that you need to stay in contacts in every week or every month and let them be part of your life. But um, that's just not me really.
3: Yeah. I've always admired about that, about you and that you um, you kind of know who you are and what you want to do and you stick with that. And I, and I think there's a, there's a lesson there to be learned because oftentimes it's easy for us to chase the shiny new object or the new advertising platform or or even just the new technique and and I think there's something to be said for um, a, as you said staying in the game and and just doing what you're doing doing what you're good at and uh, and just keep doing that uh, the, the I think the flip side to that is that's a long tail approach and and a lot of people don't have that kind of patience so how do you keep How do you keep yourself from getting too disappointed in that? You know, you're seeing these things fly by you, and you're just kind of slow and steady. Like how do how do you how do you keep focused on that?
0: Uh, Well, part of it is a spiritual philosophy of Taoism. It's like this ain't that big a deal in (laughs) the grand scheme of things. I mean, you know. Black hole is going to eat the universe, you know. (laughs) So, you know, we're one electromagnetic pulse away from going out of print. (laughs) A little bit of cynicism and realism of like, I'm not that big a deal, and so it keeps me grateful for everything I get, but also. You know, like I'll read the Stephen King book and it's like, why do I even bother writing? This guy's so great. And why would somebody want to read my book when there's 60 Stephen King books out there? Mm -hmm. And then again, this is kind of both a business uh, philosophy and um, kind of a philosophy. It's like, what do I really have to offer people? All I have to offer them is Scott Nicholson. You know, Mm -hmm. when I'm writing, nobody can write what I'm writing. And this is true for each writer out there. You know what, all you really have to, is your own set of experiences, viewpoints, emotions, um, that, but that's individual. We all have that and nobody can take it away. So I'm committed to that for my life. You know, my life is my creative life and the physical life I'm living is that, okay, I'm Scott Nicholson. I'm okay with that. And if that's all I am, that's enough.
3: I love that because I think that's really, that's inspiring for everyone. Uh, as you said, everyone is themselves, and they have something unique to offer. And uh, I was going to ask you as sort of a a culminating question was, you know, what is your approach to the business of writing, which you just so eloquently uh, described. So, I think I'd like to maybe follow up with you and say, so, so, what is the unique Scott Nicholson? What does what does a reader get who decides to pick up one of your books?
0: I think there's a little bit of humor again I think my cynicism but I think it's tempered with some dark humor and sometimes some light humor a little bit of silliness I, ultimately I take the writing seriously but I don't take myself seriously so I love putting characters in weird situations and um, and killing off the good guy once in a while and letting the bad guy win sometimes and just uh, I won't say I'm unpredictable but I think I'm just a little lift of left at the dial. So <laughs> you're not going to get what I do with anybody else. Not exactly. So.
3: All right. So that was Scott Nicholson. Uh, I think he delivered as promised. what do you think?
2: Yeah. And you know, one of the things that he brought up, I, and I never really thought about this that much, but like I, I, there's a used bookstore here that I go to all the time. And one of the things that I tend to look for is that, you know, the paperback on a shelf somewhere somewhere that just looks like it's been beat to hell you know, has been read by like a thousand different people. Like that's usually the one I'll pluck off the shelf. Yeah. And the, the one that looks brand new is, is the one I'll kind of steer clear of, you know, just because you know, obviously a lot of people have liked it. Um, there, there actually is a way to, to, to dog ear a book digitally now, or as an author to see what's going on, because a lot of people tend to highlight text in their Kindle. Right. Um, and as an author, you can go in and you can see what passages are being highlighted and how many people have highlighted those. So for me, that's kind of a cool way to, to get insight into you know what parts of the book people, people actually like. Um, and he, I mean, he's kind of, he really struck me as somebody who just sort of goes with the flow. Um, yeah. but at the same time, he kind of stays ahead of it just a little bit. Like he, you know, just, just enough, you know, like he, he's not, not greedy, not overly, overly aggressive, just, you know, like, oh, this is coming. I think I'll give it a shot kind, kind of guy. Um, but he seems to have a handle on what's happening. Um, and, and. You know, it's, it's obviously it's worked out well for him. He's got a strong back catalog and the sales numbers look pretty good too.
3: Yeah. He's a humble guy. Uh, I've interviewed him a few times. I used to have a podcast called the horror writers podcast many years ago and I had him on there and it's every time I talk to him, it, he's he's decrying the end of indie publishing he's like oh this is it (laughs) like like you know I think it was uh when when Kindle Unlimited was was introduced like well that's it for that like you know and and then AMS adds well that's it for that and yet he kind of survives you know he he, like you said he's got this this he plays a long game he's gritty he perseveres and but he does it in just sort of a real laid-back manner like well I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing and I'm going to keep writing the next book and here he is. Well, a couple
2: of the things you guys touched on, um, yeah, I, I really do think the traditional publishers are going to end up jumping into Facebook and Amazon ads and those types of things, and, and outprice the, the the little guy. Yeah, um, that, that that's going to happen. But at the same time, one of the things that I, I always mention when I give an author talk is I, I tend to liken the large publishers as a cruise ship, you know, this big giant lumbering boat, and a, an indie author is like a little speedboat that in and all all around the harbor and you know do circles around that that other boat, um, and that's kind of the way that it works. And in, indie authors. Tend Tend to they're, they're resilient you know if, if something like that happens there, there will be four or five other choices of something brand new to try um, that, that nobody has, has even considered yet or you know some little 16 year old kid right now is plugging away on his computer and he's coming up with something that we're all going to be using in a couple of years um, to, to completely circumvent whatever you know the next round of this thing is but but I don't see the indie author ever going away or being forced out in, in any way whatsoever I think we'll just you know continue to adapt and 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 you know work work around whatever problem is this thrown in front of us.
3: Well, it's interesting you say that because when I was um, talking to to Rachel on the Writers Well podcast, I you popped into my head. I'm like, I want to ask you this on the air because we were talking a little bit about it, and I'm wondering if you think uh, traditional publishers are going to compete uh, on price with eBooks anytime in the near future?
2: I honestly don't know that they can. Yeah. um yeah, because a lot of the money that, that comes in from the ebook they used to finance a lot of the other things that they're doing um you know but that's changing and i think that this virus right now is it's going to it's going to force that to change you know like things like book tours and stuff like that were are kind of on their way out um because it's expensive you know you go to you know they fly you to seattle to talk to you know a couple hundred people um, you know, even if every single person there buys a book, it still doesn't necessarily pay for that event and all the money associated with it. So, you know, those types of things, you know, were paid for by those those ebooks and they pay for a lot of salaries. You know, there's, there's a big, you know, overhead at, at those types of companies. Um, it's one of the things that I've talked to my publishers about quite a bit because, you know, like Amazon's got a tool, you know, on, on KDP um, that allows you to basically see what your best price point is on not only your own sales, but the, the sales of your competitors or people that are like you. Now, I'm sure this is something that's available to, to the traditional publishers and they yeah. just ignore it, you know, just like they ignored BookBub, you know, for for years. And now all of a sudden you start you're starting to see those those kind of titles and authors pop up on there. Um, I, I, think, you know, just like they might force the advertising hand and, and kind of get to the point where, you know, indie authors can't afford to play in that world anymore. I think they might have to lower ebook prices just to, to stay competitive with some of the other options that, that are out there. Um, you know, Kindle Unlimited is another one, like a lot of traditional publishers will not touch Kindle Unlimited and it drives me nuts because I've got a big audience there. I, I know if they put you know my books there, they're going to do well. Um, but you know, just for whatever reason they did, they don't want to participate, um, you know, These kind of changes, they, they, they do happen though. I mean, you can, they follow the money. I mean, eventually that money is going to force their, their hand and, and they're going to have to you know, make a change whether they want to or not.
3: Do you think that the eBooks for the traditional publishers are more of a loss leader? Like, do you think they're making most of their revenue on, the, on paper?
2: No, there, there's, I mean, I, I, I don't have the facts in front of me, but I just, I don't see how that would be physically possible. I okay. mean, because the, the, the print, I mean, unless you're printing in ridiculous volume on, on paper, um, it's just, it's, it's just cost prohibitive. Um, so I, I think the profit is, is coming from the ebook, um, is one of the reasons why they're so reluctant to, to break that out now in a contract and, and, you know, like just do a contract for just print rights. Like very few publishers would consider doing that. Um, but you know, we'll see, um, you know right now it's sustaining them you know very few physical books I think are being sold it's it's very difficult you know to, to move a physical book right now um, so a lot of people I think are looking very closely at those ebook numbers and you know thinking well you know this virus is probably going to go away it's going to change in some way or another but the world is going to change too and we need to make sure that a year from now we've adapted to, to deal with it because they got blindsided just like every other business out there you know one day they're, they're selling hardcovers in stores all around the, the world and the next day they're not um, you know so they're going to try and come up with a a plan b to make sure that kind of thing doesn't happen again and i think ebooks is is probably it
3: yeah yeah so indies can see that coming be ready whether it's pricing or k or unlimited i think uh the traditional publishers are going to be looking to compete and they're going to have to pretty soon so be looking out for that yep all right so what do we got who's on the docket for next week
2: Um, I think you've got somebody coming in, right, Brian? Is it Brian?
3: Yeah, Brian Cohen, an old friend of mine. He is the host of the Selmore Book Show, and they've been doing that for, I want to say, five years now. Um, uh, Selmore Book Show is great. It's my go-to for industry news, especially around indies and self-publishing. Jim Kukul is on there, and now uh, Claire Taylor is, is hosting with him. But Brian is really sort of Developed into an Amazon ad expert, and uh, and I that's I'm really uh, I- um, excited to talk to him about that because I think a lot of authors right now are trying to figure that out and and figure out how you know as Scott was was talking about how do you put a little bit of money in and and, and hopefully get your books discovered and and Brian Cohen uh, he's he's become an expert at that so um, it's gonna be fun talking to him.
2: I'm definitely looking forward to that. I've got a pretty good handle on Facebook ads. I, you know, I've I've got the dashboard figured out. I, I know what's working for me and what's not. Um, Amazon ads, it, it might as well be in Greek. You know, when I, <laughs> when I look at it, like I, I've, to, I, I've got, um, I've got, I think probably about fifty to hundred different ads running on Amazon. Um, I had paid a company at one point to create some. Um, and a lot of them are based on, on, keywords that have nothing to do with my books, but you know, like it's, it's, they had a certain algorithm, like people will type in certain keywords along with other keywords. And like, they were able to direct traffic that way. And like this huge program involved in creating them. So like, I've let them go, but it's like, I'm just, I'm throwing money at it every month. And I honestly yeah. have no clue if it's actually, you know, moving the needle for me. Um, and like, you know, once a week, I've got a little reminder set up to look at it. And I, I, I do, I look at it, but I don't do anything about it. Um, and one of these days I might just flip the switch to the off position just to see if it actually does anything, <laughs> um, you know, because it's costing me a small fortune, you know, every month on the, you know, I, and I don't know whether it's actually even moving books. Yeah, so it'd be nice to hear from somebody that actually understands that platform. And if he understands TikTok or some of these other ones, I would love to hear about that too. Because <laughs> I'm sure there's advertising, you know, opportunities there but um, I haven't touched him yet.
3: Yeah, I know he has Amazon ad school. I don't know if he has TikTok author school in the works. But, uh... Uh, tell him to
2: roll that one out for next year.
3: All right. <laughs> <laughs> well, that'll do it for this week. Uh, so to our, uh, to our listeners, we appreciate your support. And if you like what you're hearing, please tell a friend or consider leaving us a review on iTunes. Until next time, have a great week of writing.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.